Good morning. Good morning. How are y'all today? It is really good. I'm good. Thank you. It's good to be back here. Um, I was uh, with uh, Paul and Zach at a pastor's retreat a couple of weeks ago in Southern California, and I'm trying to find 300 $1,000 donors a year so I can move back there. And I've never been to Southern California until then, and I've not found one yet. So be praying for that for me. Um, I was with those guys, and then, of course, I've known Scott for some time, for quite a few years now. And um, I remember two years ago when Jerry passed, and I was totally heartbroken, like many of you were. And I had met Jerry once or twice. She probably had, didn't remember me, but I just, I love Scott, and I was just gutted. I couldn't imagine being in his place and those circumstances, and so I reached out and said, man, can I preach at your church? I've never asked somebody that before, and so um, I would really like to just come in and just like preach. I'm, I'm working on this series on the book of Lamentations, and I've got some stuff, and if you want to preach, knock yourself out, but I just want you to know that I'm available, and if you need somebody to step in, and I was able to come here a couple of years ago, and I felt that as I ministered that morning, I don't know if you got anything out of it, but I did. I felt like I was worshiping as I was speaking, and um, and I'm really glad to be back here again. And uh, I don't know most of most of you, maybe all of you in this room, but this feels truly, truly, this isn't preacher talk. This feels like family to me. Um, I uh, Scott has always made such an impression on me. I've never heard Scott preach. Um, I don't know if he's any good or not. I assume he is, since you guys are all here. Um, but I remember, you know, entering ministry 26 years ago, full time. And I had all of these assumptions and all these dreams and all these ambitions about ministry. And over 26 years, God has just chiseled those things all away. And really what I want now is epitomized, personified in your pastor. I want to be gentle. I want to exude love. I want to disarm people around me, not like, like take your guns. I mean, like, like disarm you in your souls. I want you to feel at rest and peace around me. I want, I want to be able to look up from my phone and my work and be able to enter into the people's world that God has put in my world. And man, I don't know anybody, truly, I don't know anybody who does that better than Scott. I'm sure somebody does on planet Earth, but I don't know that person. I only know Scott. And so I'm just so thankful for him. Um, he is such a great, great brother, and I'm excited for what God's doing in his life, new things and new loves, and yet he is experiencing sadness. And so that's really what life, this life is. It's love, joy, sadness, sorrow, and all that stuff thrown together. And as uh, Paul, you read a moment ago, Jesus is, needs to be the center of that in our lives as we navigate this fearful and uh, glorious world. So... I'm going to ask you guys to do something with me, and that is to stand for the reading of God's Word. And if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to read from verses um, 12 through 17. Scripture says this. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness 
have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the regions in in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Um, I'm jumping into this text today um, for a couple of reasons. One, because I recently preached it and didn't have to write a sermon this week. I'm just going to be totally honest with you. Um, When Scott asked me to preach, I was like, yes, I don't have to write a sermon that week. But there was more to it than that. I really love this text. And I'm really happy that I get to spend another week sitting in this text and being with it. As a preacher, I feel all this pressure to move ahead to the next text and live in that for a while so that I can do that, treat that rightly, hopefully, in my sermon the following Sunday. But I got to sit in this longer. And this text is really um, rich. It's really dear to me. Um, I'm using this text because in my personal life for the last several years, I've been doing something different. I I didn't grow up doing this. But I, I, I grew up in a non-denominational church, and um, the traditions, uh, the old traditions of the church for the hundreds of years preceding the birth of my church, I was totally unaware of for the longest time. And over the last several years, because I wanted more of a rich experience in Jesus, because I wanted to be able to look around and see my world through the lens of the, of the gospel and live a, 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 an intentionally Christian life. Um, I began to adopt some of the practices of the Christian calendar. And um, so right now, we are in uh, the season of Epiphany. And the season of Epiphany uh, is the season that runs up to Lent. And Epiphany simply means to reveal or to bring to light. That's all that means. Um, And it's in this season, traditionally, that the church has been reminded that the reason that God put us here is that, one, we are a light... God has shown his light on us and in us, and he desires to shine his light through us to the nations. So it's not just about a personal revelation of Jesus and epiphany. It's about so that the whole world may live in epiphany, the light of Jesus. And so I really like that. And uh, this season has come to be traditionally associated with one of the first stories that we read about in Scripture in the New Testament, and that is when the Magi came to visit Jesus after he was born. The Magi were from somewhere further east, way out east, east of Jerusalem, um, in another land. We don't know exactly who they were, but more than likely, they were sort of a, uh, a spiritual pagan um, shaman, and uh, they were from a cult religion. And yet, God used their cult religion and their observance of astrology to draw them to follow a star to visit the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and they were the first Gentiles to lay eyes on Jesus. And so in the season of Epiphany, we remember that all of us who are, most of us who are Gentiles, I don't know if there are any Jewish people here, but most of us in this room, I can safely assume, are Gentiles, if not all of us, we remember that God shone his light on us and that we are called to bear his light to the rest of the nations. And whenever you see that word nation in scripture, don't think Canada, China, the Philippines, Russia, America, think ethnic groups, because that's what that word means in the original language. It's God's call on us to shine his light on all of the ethnic groups of the world, because God loves 
every ethnic group on planet Earth. Every ethnic group. Every one. Every one. Which is why racial bigotry is particularly demonic. And so in uh, verses 12 through 17, we come to this text that is traditionally associated with the season of Epiphany. And so we're going to spend a few moments there and start right off in verses tw- verse 12. And I want you to notice something as we jump into this, that this is a pivotal moment in the life and teachings and ministry of Jesus. Something dramatic happens that causes Jesus to move into a new phase of ministry. He's been baptized by John. That is where God pronounced his blessings. This is my my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It was after that when the Holy Spirit had come upon Jesus and led Jesus into the wilderness. In the section right before this in chapter 4, where Jesus was led into the wilderness for the specific purpose to be tempted by Satan. And many of us, who, who, if you grew up in church, you know what happened there. Jesus, for 40 days, did not eat food. At the end of that time, Satan came to him and tested him in three ways that struck at the very core of his identity. And they were real and legitimate temptations. And Jesus overcame those temptations. He exits the wilderness and hears that his cousin, his first cousin, John, that he probably grew up with, playing with, hanging out with, maybe even working with in his dad's shop, John has been arrested and Jesus retreats away from the south in the Judean area up to the north in Capernaum. And it's important that we see this in our mind. Judea was this area in southern Israel um, and the capital of Judea was Jerusalem. In northern Israel is what we're describing here, Capernaum, Naphtali, Zebulun. These are all territories in the north. That's important. So I'm not trying to give you like a geography lesson here, but uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. But in, in this text, this pivotal text, this is a pivotal text, verses 12 through 17, that set the stage for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. Okay? Now, in verse 12 and then in verse 17, Something significant is stated, and these act as bookends in this text. You guys follow me? So what are the bookends of this text? Which verses? 12 and 17. So look at verse 12. Now when he heard, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He went up north into Galilee, away from Jerusalem, Judea, where all of the political tension was taking place, where all the, the Roman occupation and governorship was, uh, was uh, uh, where the capital of that was there, where there was this tension between the Jews, uh, like a really heavy tension, political tension between the Jews and the Romans, all that stuff was going on. Jesus withdrew into Galilee, and he did that. Why or what precipitated that? John's arrest. Now, why in the world was John arrested? That's where we need to go back to Matthew chapter 3. And if you join me in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, Matthew 3, 7 through 10, it says this. But when he saw many, and he, the, the he being John the Baptist, when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Basically, You guys are a family of snakes. 
I said that to our church once, and that didn't go over very well. Um, I'm kidding. Um, But that's what John said to them. Now, why would he call Pharisees and Sadducees a family of snakes? Um, Just briefly, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not only religious leaders in Israel. And this is where, as Americans, we have to distance ourselves from our familiar, our familiar environment and put ourselves in this text. This, what, these guys weren't like the district superintendents of the Southern Baptist Convention or the bishops of the United Methodist Church. That's not who these guys were. They had that kind of institutional power, but they were also politicians. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were also politicians. Politics and religion was very intertwined. I know we, don't, we can't relate to that at all today, can we, in the American South? But politics and religion was very much intertwined. And these people had political clout in the nation of Israel amongst the Jews. The Pharisees were sort of a middle-class group that they saw it as their responsibility to hold the people of God accountable to live out the word of God. They felt that the reason why the Romans were occupying Israel was because God was punishing Israel for their sins. And so they thought, we need to hold people accountable. And so, for instance, if you were a Jewish person living in Israel at this time, and you did business with Gentiles or Romans, the Pharisees would say, let's boycott this store and run them out of business so that they will pay for their betrayal of the people of God. These were people who positioned themselves in certain areas of society and they would hold people accountable and try to demonstrate to people what piety looked like, which is why Jesus rebuked them for standing in the streets and praying publicly in order to be noticed. Jesus was calling them out. John the Baptist also knew their ways. He was also calling them out here, which is why he said, you are a brood of vipers, like a sack of snakes. And then there's the Sadducees. The Sadducees were decidedly different than the Pharisees. They rubbed shoulders very closely with the politicians and the rulers and the kings and the, leader, the political leaders of Israel. Um, these people were wealthy, very wealthy. They lived in palatial homes. Archaeologists have found evidence of this. They were fabulously wealthy, and the reason why they lived that way was because the Sadducees had long rejected the idea that God involved himself in the lives of humans. They rejected that. They also rejected the afterlife. And so their thought was, if there's no afterlife, we might as well get everything we can out of this life right now. And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees had come down to look at John's baptism. What would motivate them to go to John the Baptist's baptism? Well, let's remember that at the time of this writing, the Romans had been in Israel for 60 years. They invaded Israel 60 years before the birth of Jesus. Actually, it's been about, uh, it's been about 90 years now, but it's about, about 60 years before Jesus, they had invaded Israel and had occupied the nation of Israel. And they ruled with an iron fist. There are stories in extra-biblical literature, historians who wrote about the thousands and thousands of people that they would crucify and stake on the sides of the roads entering into Jerusalem to send a message to anybody who came there or lived there, do not mess with Rome. We will bury you. 
And so John the Baptist is baptizing people at the River Jordan. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are probably concerned. Thousands and thousands of people are going to be baptized by John the Baptist. And their fear is, what if John the Baptist gathers all these folks together and leads a revolt or a rebellion against Rome? If that happens, we are dead. And so they go down to assess John's baptism down at the River Jordan. There's a lot in this text that we've got we've to dig into that we often misunderstand. I used to think, why would anybody want to arrest John the Baptist? He ate bugs and wore animal skins. So what? He baptized people. He was probably a really great guy. He obviously loved the Bible. He loved God. Why would anybody in the world want to, want to arrest John the Baptist? Which leads to the same question. Why would anybody want to arrest Jesus? Jesus raised the dead. He healed the sick. He was probably the sweetest man to hang out with. But you see, back in those days, there was a lot of fear that these people who had great multitudes following them could lead a revolt against Rome, and Rome would destroy Israel. In fact, and I'm bringing the History Channel to an end right here. In fact, 40 years after Jesus' resurrection, that's, that thing happened precisely. Israel revolted against Rome, and in the year A.D. 70, Rome surrounded Israel, sent their armies into Jerusalem, and annihilated the city of Jerusalem. This May, I'm going to be leading, my wife and I are leading a group of people, 30 folks from our church, we're going to go to Israel. And it's been a lifetime dream of mine to go to Israel. And we are going to go, we're going to be in Jerusalem the weekend of the Feast of Pentecost, the Jewish Feast of uh, Shabbat. And while we're there, we're going to be in Jerusalem. We're going to go to the temple where Jesus healed the sick and taught and rebuked the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. And when we get there, on top of the temple mount is going to be no temple because the temple was destroyed 2,000 years ago by Rome in A.D. 70. We're going to go to the Temple Mount. Today, there's this wall, maybe many, many of you probably know this, called the Western Wall. And in the Western Wall, many devout Jews gather and they'll write down prayers on pieces of paper and stick them into the crevices and the holes and the cracks on that wall. That is the closest they feel that they can move toward Yahweh, their God. Um, so this is sort of what's happening here. This is like the socio-political unrest that's happening in Israel. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they are going down to his baptism, and he said to them, you brood of vipers, you family of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, you're not here because you're repentant. You felt no warning in your heart and your conscience that you are that you have an impaired relationship with God and you're in sin and that you need to repent. He is calling them out. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you are repentant, your repentance is quantifiable. It's one thing to say we are repentant, or as they say today, I love Jesus. But a relationship with God is quantifiable. It's not just this subjective, I've got, I've got, I get warm fuzzies when I'm in worship. And Andrew Peterson's like my favorite artist of all time. So when Zach sang that song, I was like, yes, I just felt Jesus even more. Probably subjective too, but man, I just, I love the lyrics of that song. But that's, repentance is not just that I can connect with God during worship. It is quantifiable. It looks like something. And John calls that out here. 
He says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Why would he say that? Why would he say, don't think that you're off the hook because Abraham is your great, 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 grandfather. Don't think you're off the hook because of that. Why would they think that? Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, God finds this man named Abram, who we are later, who we later know as Abraham, and he says to Abram, he makes a promise to me, he says, Abram, I am going to take you, and through you and your wife, you are going to have a great lineage, a great family that's going to come from your loins, and that word loins, and, uh, and from your loins, all this family is going to come, and that family is going to be blessed, I'm going to bless you with that family, and your family is going to bless all the nations, again, ethnic groups, your family is going to bless all the nations of the earth. And so people who were Jewish assumed that because we are sons and daughters of Abraham, that means we are God's people, we're good to go. John the Baptist is down at the river saying, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, don't you assume that for one second. The blood running through your veins does not mean that you're good with God. Your heart has to be repentant, and there needs to be a lifestyle that you have that mirrors that repentance that you claim to have. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're, they're probably a little bit upset by this. They see that John the Baptist can, is not going to be diplomatic about this. He's not like, hey, guys, come over here. Let me just, here's the reason why I'm baptizing people, just to let you know. I'm not trying to upset the apple cart here. I know you guys are in charge. No offense. John does not do anything diplomatic. John hits the nuke button the moment they show up. And as soon as they show up, they're realizing, like, there's nothing we can do to control this guy. He eats bugs and honey. He lives in the wilderness. He wears animal skins as a practice, more than likely a practice of self-suffering so that he can further deny himself and separate himself from this world. We can't control this guy. That's scary. What if this guy leads a revolution? I've got a, uh, I know a guy. In fact, we heard this guy speak at a conference that we were just recently at, and he was telling the story, and he's told the story many times in public settings, so I know this is okay. Um, but he was a pastor, and, and was leading a huge church. And in the mid-2000s, this pastor um, finally broke down and recognized that he needed to check himself into rehab because of his addictions in his life. And so he asked his elders for time off. They granted him that. He said he wasn't well. He checks himself into rehab and goes through therapy for, I think, several months. Upon graduation from rehab, they have a graduation ceremony where they stand behind a pulpit, and he told the story of how it was so hard for him to stand behind the pulpit because he just didn't want that life anymore. And so he said he would stand off to the side, but before this graduation ceremony, all the graduates had to stand up and with all of their families and friends present, talk about what God had done in their lives in bringing them freedom. And it's a good thing. I say they had to, but it it was a gift that they were able to do this. Uh, But for him, it wasn't that much of a gift because he needed the job that he had. That's how he provided for his family. And he was afraid if he told his story of his sexual brokenness in in front of that group, that his elders would fire him. And he says that he was sharing this concern with his sponsor prior to his graduation, and this was his sponsor's response. Burn the mountain. 
burn the mountain. Let go. That's what I got out of this. Let go. What's underneath your addictions is your anxiety and you trying to maintain control and you worried about your image and you being driven by ego and all of that stuff. Let go. Burn the mountain. And he did. And he lost his job, which was a grace because today he's one of the most incredible intuitive, gifted therapist that I've ever seen, and he's helping pastors and leaders and people and ordinary folk all over the place navigate addiction in their life. This is John the Baptist. The Pharisees knew when they encountered him, he's going to burn the mountain. There's no stopping this guy. So it makes sense that in the next chapter, we see John the Baptist getting arrested. He's getting arrested. Politics are beginning to swell and close in on the Jesus people, upon the people who are trying to reach for repentance and transformation. So that's one bookend. Here's the other bookend, verse 17. And this goes with verse 12. Um, this segues perfectly. It says this, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, What? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Isn't that interesting? Jesus begins to preach the same sermon that John the Baptist had been preaching. Now, when we hear the phrase kingdom of heaven, I don't know about you, but for the longest time, I thought the kingdom of heaven, what Jesus was talking about when he said that was this, that one day after I die, I'm going to be invisible and I'm going to sit on clouds and play invisible harps. And it's going to be lovely. Which is why I would always pray as a young kid, Jesus, please don't come back until I get married. Please don't come back until like after I go to Disney World. I was on the beach, on a beach, on a rocky cliff with Chuck who preached here last week. And we were, we were like 40 feet in the air overlooking the Pacific Ocean. I'd never been there before. And we're watching the sun come down. And I, I literally thought, Jesus, if you're coming, give me five more minutes here. Just five more minutes. This is amazing. Um, that is not what Jesus meant by kingdom of heaven. The reason he says kingdom of heaven, and incidentally in these same passages, these parallel passages in Mark, he says kingdom of God. The reason is, is that because Mark is not writing to a Jewish, his audience is not Jewish. Matthew's audience is Jewish. And Jews dared not utter the name God out of reverence for God. And so Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. It's coming. He says, repent, it's coming. And so we hear invisible harps and what happens after death, that is not what the Jews hear when they hear kingdom of heaven. Let me back up a little bit more. I said that was the end of the History Channel. I'm going to turn it back on just for a minute until the next commercial, okay? So bear with me. Um, I want to remind you that the people of Israel that Jesus is dealing with have a long, long history. Like, how old is America? 240 or 50 years, something like that? They, the nation of Israel, had been occupied and conquered by foreign nations for 800 years. They never had a revolutionary war where they 
found themselves as a sovereign nation. They were under the control and the power and the abuse of foreign nations for almost 800 years. In fact, the first nation to invade Israel, it came into northern Israel, and it was called Assyria. And here's what Assyria did. They conquered the northern kingdom, carried away almost everyone into exile. If you like watch Indiana Jones or something like that, and, and, they, and you ever hear in the movies this phrase, the ten lost tribes of Israel, that's what that's talking about. The northern tribes of Israel vanished from the face of the map, never to be heard from again. Now, there were some people who were remaining in the northern kingdom of Israel. And here's where Assyria just crosses the line when it comes to being sinister. They know that they want to make sure that nobody in northern Israel ever rises up against them again. So what do they do? They take a bunch of people from other lands, put them in northern Israel, and make them intermarry with the, Jew, with the Israelites who live there. And so generations later, you've got these Jewish people, sort of Jewish people, that are like, okay, we know that we come from, have a Jewish heritage or an Israelite heritage. At the same time, we've also got blood that comes from all over the world. And who are we? What are we? When Jesus retreats to northern Israel, these are the people that he's dealing with. In Capernaum, Zebulun, Naphtali. And what's crazy about Jesus and counterintuitive and amazing is in the next text, beginning in verse 19, can anybody see what verse 19, there's a little heading over most of your Bibles in verse 19. What does that say, that heading? Just say it out loud. Don't be bashful, my friends. Jesus loves you. Jesus calls his first disciples. From where did he get his first disciples? The pure blood Jews in the south who grew up going to Bible college and sitting in the Pharisees and rabbis and all that stuff? No. He calls the people from the north. Twelve new leaders of Israel who were going to lead Israel into, into their salvation, he chooses from those people who have been forgotten about. He chooses from ethnically dubious people. I say that in the eyes of their southern brothers and sisters. He chooses them. This is where Jesus goes to launch his ministry to Zebulun, Naphtali, Capernaum, that Sea of Galilee. I'm going to stay in a hotel there, and we've got a messianic worship leader coming to hang out. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. We're going to worship at the Sea of Galilee. It's going to be great. Um, that's just in a few months. I'm not on Facebook. My wife will be. Follow her. You can see all the stuff that we're doing. So, um, so from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Assyria invades Israel 800 years ago. A couple of hundred years after that, Babylon invades the south. And they carry away a bunch of Jews into exile. And they're slaves in Babylon. You ever heard of a guy named Daniel? He was a slave in Babylon. You ever heard of Ezekiel? He was a slave in Babylon. You ever heard of Esther? She was a slave in Assyria. These biblical figures that we read about in the Old Testament, many of these people were slaves. Jeremiah's writings, some of his writings, he was writing to people who were slaves in Babylon. After Babylon came the Media Persians. Then they were the ones in charge of Israel. And then after the Media Persians, Alexander the Great. Anybody heard of Alexander the Great? He blazes through the Middle East, and Israel is conquered once again by the Greeks. And then after that, for like a little sliver of about 100 years or so, the Jews can breathe. <sighs> Nobody 
has taken us over yet. This feels really weird. And then one day, these Romans come walking down the street, and ever since, they've been in slavery. So when the, Jew, when the Jews here repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they, this is not what they think. Let's go to the invitation at the front after church is over. Let's pray and ask Jesus into our hearts. And let's read our Bibles every day and witness. That is not what they're thinking. When the Jews here repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, this is what they hear. No longer will Caesar be our king or any other man or even Herod. God, Yahweh, is going to be our king at last. At last. Finally, God will be our king. Finally. Now many of them were confused by this. They thought that Jesus was merely a representative of God and that Jesus was going to be a great military leader and overthrow Rome. And that was not what Jesus had in mind. That is not what it looks like to have God as king in your life. For God to be king in your life does not mean violent revolt against political leaders. For God to be king in your life looks like something totally different. And it's this text that anticipates these words in Matthew chapter 5. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? The rule of God in our lives. The governing of God in our lives. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the who? Who are those who are really blessed? The vengeful or the merciful? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, like John the Baptist was in the previous chapter, two chapters earlier. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the, what is the kingdom of heaven again? Did I pray and read my Bible and go to church? Is that the kingdom of heaven? I would argue that it includes that. But there's more to the kingdom of heaven. It's God is my king. God is my king. They couldn't stand it. Herod, years earlier, traveled to Rome and he received kingly authority from the Roman Senate. He came back and he's known as Herod the Great. His next son, Herod, was ruling over Israel alongside Pontius Pilate and other leaders and governors. These people were all puppets. The Jews knew it and they couldn't stand it. They couldn't stand it. And it's in this context that these rabbis begin to emerge in Israel. They called them apocalyptic rabbis back then. These were people who were longing to be ruled by God, to be free from Caesar, to be free from Rome, to be free. When Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, when somebody tells you to carry their stuff or walk with you one mile, 
walk with them one mile, you walk with them too. The reason he said that was because there was a law that a Roman soldier could ask any Jewish person to carry his stuff, and by law, that Jew had to walk one mile. Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to protest the fact that you are being dehumanized and make it really uncomfortable for him, and I want you to walk with him for two miles. And watch, let him watch you sweat as you, rather than punch him or assault him or protest to him, you are going to protest an entirely different way. You are going to walk with him for two miles and not just one mile. Jesus was speaking into this mess through his whole ministry, speaking into it, speaking into it, speaking into it. And he's speaking into us. My contention is, is that one of the reasons why, one of them, and this is a multi-layered deal, one of the big reasons why people are leaving the church in herds every day it's because many of us, me included, have struggled connecting the dots between our Sunday morning, private, daily devotional faith to what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Let me give you an example. Some people wrongly say, and I, I submit this to you, some people assume that, I've heard people say this, John the Baptist is the final Old Testament prophet. You ever heard that before? He's the last Old Testament prophet. We have to have categories in our culture. It's crazy. We have to have like labels and categories and to see things through the Greek lens. of that is, I am convinced that is not how an ancient Jew like Paul or Peter or anybody else would have looked at John the Baptist. There was total continuity between John the Baptist and Jesus. There are people who negate John the Baptist and say foolish things like, John the Baptist was a prophet of the law. Jesus introduced grace. That is, that is just incorrect. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus who was a prophet and Jesus carried on his same sermon. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same implications of John. If you're gonna repent, have works that show your repentance. Not works that show that you love God, but works rather that show that you're worshiping God. I tell our church all the time, this is not about, if you're, if you're thinking that you need to do things so that God will love you more, you've missed it. God loved you more than you will ever be loved before you ever walked the aisle and asked Jesus into your heart. You were already loved extravagantly. He will never love you more than that. When you came to faith in Jesus, Jesus' righteous, perfect righteousness was imputed to your life only because of God's grace, not based on any merit of your own. But that's where most of us stop with gospel preaching. We forget that the gospel also calls us to worship because we are now the people of God. And worship isn't just singing beautiful songs. Worship is living a life that honors King Jesus. Again, not so that he will love us. We are loved. Not so that we will be righteous. We are already righteous by faith in Christ Jesus. But we cultivate good works because we love him. He is good, and we are living lives that honor him. We mirror him. We imitate Jesus. We are being conformed into the image of Jesus. So what did John the Baptist mean when he said, repent, show works that befit repentance? Turn with me to Luke chapter uh, 3. I'm coming in for a landing. Luke chapter 3. I see the runway. It's a little foggy, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to circle once or twice, but we're going to get there. I promise you. Um, we'll be done before the Super Bowl, I swear. So uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. 
See if any of this sounds familiar. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Does that sound familiar? Did we read that earlier? Am I mistaken? Y'all help me. I've kind of forgotten. Did we read that somewhere else before? Yeah. I know, I'm patronizing. I'm sorry. Um, verse 9. Uh, for verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. There it, does that sound familiar? Oh, come on. Humor me, guys. Just not like nod at me. People in my church do this. makes me crazy. I'm begging them to nod, and guys are back there going, uh-uh, not going to do it. I'm like, I love you. I love you. You're preaching next Sunday. Uh, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our, does this sound familiar? We have Abraham as our father, but I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree, yada, yada, yada. Okay, verse 10. Now, this is the, this is the most rational response to what John preached. What does repentance look like? When you say bear fruits in keeping with repentance, what do you mean by that? And this is what they say in verse 10. And the crowd said to him, what then shall we do? In other words, what do you mean by repentance? And he says this. He answered them. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Now, back then, people didn't have closets full of clothes. Like Monday morning leggings. Tuesday is yoga. Wednesday, I'm going to wear my, my parka my North Face stuff. People, didn't, people made their clothes. There wasn't an industry for clothing back then. If you had one or two pieces of clothing, you were good. You were well off. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. So what does repentance look like? Giving clothes to people who don't have any? Am I reading this wrong? Because I think in, in America, I love America, please. I love F-16s. I do not burn flags, I swear. I love our country. I'm going to get goosebumps when those, they fly over the stadium tonight when I watch that. Go Chiefs, by the way. Uh, I'm going to get goosebumps. But don't let so much of our politics has backfilled some of these things, like words like justice and social issues with so much stuff that we can't even read the Bible anymore because we're afraid it's going to step on our toes. He's telling us to be generous to people who don't have anything. I think the rest of the New Testament teaches this. He's to tax collectors also came to him and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. So what was Jesus identifying there? Some brokenness in the culture, greed, yes. It was known, and history has shown us that the tax collectors would absolutely fleece the people of Israel, which was reprobate to them, because these tax collectors were Jewish, they were working for Rome, and they were fleecing God's people. What's crazy is Matthew was a tax collector who came to Jesus, the gospel that we're reading out of this morning. Don't take more than you should. Pay your taxes. If you're collecting taxes, don't take more than you need to. Then he said, soldiers, Roman soldiers. How do you think the authorities felt about that? Roman soldiers joining John the Baptist's band of merry repenters. And they said, 
what to, to him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. What did soldiers probably do a lot back then? It says it right there. Like, say it to me. Threatened people, extorted people, falsely accused people. Man, this was rough. And he says to them, be content with your wages. He doesn't say quit the army. He says, don't extort people. Be content with your wages. Stop being greedy. This is what repentance looks like in the mind of John. Isn't that crazy? I don't know about you, but that kind of steps on my toes a little bit. Because it's reminding me of in how many numerous ways that I get really, um, I feel a lot of self-satisfaction. Not necessarily pride as much as just self-satisfaction. I made it through a week. I prayed every day this week. I'm still learning to connect the gospel to, to my head. I, I am. It's in my heart. I'm just learning to connect it to my head. Or I'm sorry, connect the, head in my, the gospel in my head to my heart. Sometimes I just have this visceral feeling of like, I did it this week. I made it. I read my Bible. I prayed. I didn't, you know, lose my mind with my kids. And that's sort of a low bar. Because God's opening my eyes these days to the many ways that I am not repentant. To the many ways that I am totally oblivious, totally oblivious to the need around me. Uh, two, two weeks ago, I was standing in our service, and they were about to do the announcements, and we did the announcements right after worship, and we have our congregational greeting and all that stuff, and, and uh, yeah, all churches torture their people with that. And um, so after that, we are, uh, after that, then... They, we have somebody that comes and reads the text, and then I go to preach, and we're like in the announcement part, and I'm thinking to myself, um, man, I've got to pee really bad. I'm going to end this sermon with a illustration about a urinal in a bathroom, just to let you know. So, um, so I'm like standing, I'm thinking, I've got to go to the bathroom so bad. And so I thought, this is the moment of truth. If I don't leave now, I'm going to have to hold it, and then I've got 40 conversations between me and the bathroom when this sermon's over. So I gotta do it now. So I ran out, I did the fast walk like that, you know, and uh, partly because I didn't wanna, you know, pee on the floor. But uh, so I get to the bathroom and I walk in, nobody's in the bathroom. Now I'm gonna tell you this story and this is not to make me look good. Jesus had to lead me to do this. I am not trying to impress anybody here. I wanna be very clear about that. I walk in. And in front of the urinal, when I said that, my wife just cringed last week. Urinal. I'm like, is it bad to say urinal? Urinal, 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 urinal in church. And so, um, so she's like cringing in the front. We're like, what are you going to do? What is this illustration? And I'm like, just chill. It's all good. Um, and uh, so I walk in, and there's nobody in there, and there's two urinals, urinal, urinal, urinals. And um, in front of one, it looks like, like six of these were on the floor in front of it. Just remind me, I'm thirsty. And there was pee everywhere. And I was, I was so mad. I was like, really? You got visitors here, people here for the first time, and they're going to walk in here and see like this swimming pool, this Olympic-sized pool of pee on the floor. And I was so mad. And I start going through my head like, what youth boys were in here? And I'm thinking, I know who it was. I know who it was. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, you know, I was not in a good place. So go to the other one. And you probably know what happened there. 
And, um, and I'm standing there, contempl- having this existential, you know, crisis in my life and wondering if our church is going to survive this terrible tragedy. And um, I'm standing there, and I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, it's a dude's bathroom. Par for the course, you know? Jim Gaffigan said, if you go to an American restroom and you leave with PTSD. And that's true. That's really true. And so, I, um, so I'm standing there. I'm thinking our janitor is going to be here tomorrow. Our, sir, our church can probably survive one week of peeing on the floor. And as I'm standing there, I'm thinking about the sermon that I'm about to preach. And I'm thinking about the teachings of Jesus. That our gospel culture, no offense to this church, I'm just talking about the over, like this gospel culture, gospel culture, gospel-centered this, gospel-centered that, and yet we totally ignore certain things in our life like what Jesus said about treating others the way that you want to be treated. And that verse haunts me every day because I'm thinking if I want to be treated with a clean bathroom. So I'm like, well, I guess that means that I need to treat them with a clean bathroom. And especially these days, now that we have like all these, you know, gender-neutral bathrooms, I go in there and I know it's like there's like peel of the seat. I'm like, a woman is going to come in here. Dudes, like, Get it together. Come on, if you go to a, I just want to say, guys, as an aside, if you're using a gender-neutral bathroom, a woman is going to have to use that. Please do not give her PTSD as well. So, okay, back on. So I'm, I'm, I'm standing there, and so what I do is I'm like, I've got to clean this up. And so I go to the towel dispenser, and I get like 200 towels. Because what I'm trying to do is create a barrier between my fingers and the floor and the wetness that's on the floor. I can't touch. I'm a germaphobe, and so I will... I can't touch it. If I touch that, I would lose my mind. So I'm like wiping it up, and it's like this, like this uh, sort of this rubberish tile floor. So it's like it's just like, it's like I'm polishing the floor. I'm like, this is so disgusting. And I'm realizing that God has given me this ministry of bathroom cleaning now. I'm not trying to impress you. I don't want this ministry. I don't. I've got a friend who reached out to me this week, and he said I was in the restroom at work, and he said I'm in there, and it's a mess. And he said the words that went through his mind, his mind was, dang you, Chris Bennett. But he didn't say dang. So, um, so yeah, he said darn, that's right. <laughs> so um, um, so I'm, I'm realizing that God's given me like this ministry. And, I, and there are like other little things that are beginning to like emerge in my life of what repentance and like the kingdom of God looks like. Because to the ancient Jew, it was not just about coming down to the altar. You know, every head bowed, every head bowed, every eye closed. Okay, I see that hand, I see that hand, I see that hand, I see that hand. I opened my eyes once when a dude was doing that, and nobody's hand was up. I was so frustrated by that. So, um, so I see that hand, I see that hand, I see that hand, charlatans. But um, that, this, is, this Christianity cannot be reduced to this. It is about the kingdom of God connecting with every part of our lives as we bring shalom to the world around us. And to the mind of a Jew, shalom, was, it did include worship, it did include this, what is that? Yeah, vertical. I always get vertical and horizontal mixed up. It was this vertical dimension of worship, but it was also a horizontal dimension that God has put me in this world to bring shalom to this world. And yes, that includes personal evangelism. But not just that. It also includes kindness and gentleness and tenderness to our families. It includes cultivating a lifestyle where we speak in measured ways with tact to people rather than blowing people up on our fiery keyboard on Facebook. It's more than all that. It's, it's about living a life in which we... Do. I had a friend tell me last night, he said, I was driving down Hex Cross, and he said, it amazes me. He says, I think every person that drives down Hex Cross rolls their window down and throws at McDonald's bags. 
every person does that. I'm like, that makes me crazy. I, I remember, I'm old enough to remember Memphis being routinely one of the cleanest cities in the nation. Anybody remember that back in the 70s? One of the cleanest cities in, some of you raised your hand, you're like 15, so. Um, but one of the cleanest cities in the nation. This is not about like just having a clean city. This is about us living lives in which we bring, we bring from our lives shalom to the world around us. So I want to challenge you this morning. I want us to move away from a reduced version of the gospel to something that is better and more lovely and harder. And it is possible to clean urine off a bathroom floor for the glory of God. It is possible to return a shopping cart to its stall because I know that that kid is going to have to walk all over that parking lot and gather those things together when it's 2,000 degrees outside this summer or raining and drizzly and cold now. It's living in a way where we love our neighbor, not just our God. Every day I'm led by my prayer book to pray this prayer, something along these lines. God, I repent because I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by the things that I have done and the things that I have left undone. I have sinned against you. I have not loved you with my whole heart, and I have not loved my neighbor as myself. My friends, that is gospel. That's not works. That is gospel. And we get so bent out of shape because our kids aren't coming back to churches and young adults aren't coming back to churches and they think we're a joke. It's because we are a joke. We are a joke, respectfully. Can you ask, can I say that? Respectfully, you're a joke. <laughs> but respectfully, we are a joke to them. Yeah. Our culture does not bring, and there, in many people's minds who reject the church, our culture does not bring shalom to our world. What if that changed with like renewal church and the refuge? I think Jesus could do amazing things. I really think he could. Okay, so I'm gonna end this sermon by, uh, do you want, are you closing or should I pray or? Okay, I'm gonna end with an illustration about urine and say a prayer. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for your mercy. God, we love you. You are kind. And Jesus, I want to thank you for moving toward us, for moving toward our brokenness. I want to thank you for bringing the kingdom of God to our lives. I want to thank you for gently ruling over us, correcting us, reshaping us. And I hope, Lord God, that today we would walk away from this convicted of our sins, not claiming that just like the Pharisees, we're children of Abraham, or I've been to church all my life, I prayed the prayer, yada, 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 but really, I am a child of God, and so every day I'm gonna visit with my heart and allow Jesus to enter that space and put his finger on things that are broken selfish and out of harmony with the spirit and I'm going to live a lifestyle of repentance and align myself with God so that I may bring shalom and order love, joy, light to the world around me so that I love you and I love those people around me well in Jesus name, Amen